BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The nation's public health leaders have made plenty of mistakes during the course of the pandemic. But the truth is that they have a very difficult job. New science about the virus and about our behavior relative to the virus is coming at a torrential pace. The very foundations of the pandemic response continue to have to evolve. Today, we talk with an infectious disease specialist about several crucial papers that have come out in recent weeks. And then special events organizers in Oakland claim the police department's capricious and high fees for security are preventing them from creating necessary cultural spaces. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Almost nothing in the history of the world has focused the scientific community on a topic like COVID-19. The pandemic is both a global crisis and an incredible opportunity to study a novel virus in a naive population. At the same time, the health emergency requires publishing faster than many scientists would prefer. And that means that the new science that's coming out requires careful attention and preferably an expert guide. Luckily, we have just such a person with us here today. Joining us to talk about new work on vaccine effectiveness, masking, immunity from prior infection, and new treatments is Claire Stanley, infectious disease and public health researcher at Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So everything is not settled and remarkable new studies are coming out each week. And we want to hear from our listeners about what questions you have about the evolving COVID-19 science. You can give us a call right off the top here at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Claire Stanley, I want to start myself with the most pressing question I have right now. Uh, It sure seems like the vaccines are preventing fewer symptomatic infections than they were during the trials that got them approved by the FDA last year. And while the vaccines clearly continue to prevent the vast majority of hospitalizations and deaths and people who've been vaccinated, what's the latest on vaccine effectiveness in preventing just plain getting sick? Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly, you know, there there are a number of studies coming out from around the world. Most notably, we've had a couple of recent big studies from Israel and the UK, and there's also a couple from the US that have been coming out that have shown uh, some evidence that over time, there may be some decreasing um, protection for, for just old plain infection. As you said, you know, the, the really good news is that protection seems to remain really strong. Uh, there seems to be very effective against preventing severe disease and hospitalization, but we are seeing some of these breakthrough infections where people are getting at least sick or, or testing positive even without symptoms. So that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And is that reduced effectiveness? Do we know if that's behavioral change? Is that the Delta variant? Is that waning immunity from the vaccinations? Is that like in the study design and that the people who got the vaccine later are taking riskier behaviors? Like, do we know what's changing those numbers? And and, and also, 
it seems to me, just looking at the numbers as an outsider, like they don't always precisely match up. Like the, the numbers that are coming out from different areas uh, of the country and in different countries seem more, uh, they're, they're not all the same, which is a little bit surprising. Yeah. Well, as you said in the intro, you know, science is hard. And, and I think um, exactly as you hit on in, in that introductory statement, you know, um, it's likely a combination of, of several of those factors. And because of all of those different contextual um, factors, we are going to see differences in the numbers. So it's, it's not always easy, I think, um, for, for the public particularly to digest what may seem like contrasting or, or different numbers when, in fact, it is down to study design, different contexts, and, and the fact that people are different in different places. So, you know, I think that there is probably some suggestion that there is some level of waiting immunity. Again, I would argue that the vaccines are still highly effective. We, we aren't seeing that since we, we knew that the development endpoints for these vaccines was preventing severe illness and hospitalization, and they are still very good at that, even six plus, six plus months on. Um, it may be that there are some behavioral dif differences. Um, the good news is it seems like there probably isn't a very strong impact from the Delta variant. It does The vaccines do still seem to be very protective, again, against severe disease from the Delta variant. So that's one piece of good news in all of this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from the beginning, people knew that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which sort of used a different vector and also a, a different administration protocol, had showed lower efficacy in clinical trials. But the two mRNA vaccines produced by Moderna and Pfizer, you know, they were seen as more or less interchangeable, like exactly the same. Has the real world shown us that there are, in fact, differences between the effectiveness of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines? Yeah, it's a really excellent question. I think we're still seeing new data coming out on this all the time. Um, you know, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine was used much more widely around the world, so there are more studies from that that have come out recently. So um, I think it, 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 time will tell as more Moderna studies come out. But it does seem that perhaps the dosing was slightly different with Moderna, which may have contributed to some of these changing effects. And also in some places, obviously, the uh, timing of the, the interval between the two doses is different between the Pfizer vaccines and the, the Moderna course. And that seems to potentially have an impact as well. So interesting. So, you know, it seems like perhaps the key question for many vaccinated people is this. How likely do we think it is that someone will have an asymptomatic breakthrough infection and also transmit the virus? Because that's sort of the doomsday scenario, right? I mean, you're you're vaccinated. You don't know that you are infected and then you're able to pass it on. I mean, this is exactly the thing people don't want to have happen. Do we have any sense of how likely that scenario is or, or have good evidence on it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, certainly some of the data that are coming out do suggest that um, that vaccination does protect against infection to some degree still, right? So there's still a reduced chance of getting getting infected when, once you're fully vaccinated. Um, it, there also is some suggestion that the um, overall viral loads are lower, so you're less likely to be infectious, um, irrespective of, of your symptoms, what symptoms you might be presenting, and that you clear your infection more quickly than people who are unvaccinated. So all of those things add up to, you know, some protection against transmission from, from full vaccination, which is a really good thing. But as you say, there, there are, it is likely, I think, to some degree that, that there could be some risk of transmission in asymptomatic, fully vaccinated people. And that's one of the reasons why it remains so important to use other types of pr protective measures, like continuing to wear a mask, especially in indoor crowded spaces. Yeah. So uh, a listener tweets, how much protection does the first shot of the two-shot series offer? 
And I, I think one of the underlying questions here is, has Delta changed that calculation about you know, the effectiveness of, of just one of the two mRNA shots? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and certainly, um, you know, there, there, we know from, from the trial data and also from uh, the, the observational data that we've collected over the past several months that, that one shot does still protect to some degree against, um, particularly against hospitalization and severe outcomes. Um, but obviously, two shots is better. So um, it depends exactly on the, on the, the type of, of vaccine, but it looks as if somewhere around 60-70% um, effective against pre- preventing severe disease with one shot. Yeah. Then this is a question for actually from the same listener, um, and I'm going to extend on it a little bit. Uh, the listener question is, do we really need boosters now, or would giving someone in Africa their first shot be more helpful overall? And I think one question that arises out of this uh, for me is this question of the overall vaccination strategy that the U.S. has taken, which has been pretty pretty nationalistic in, a, in its orientation, trying to get as many Americans vaccinated uh, as possible, and then proposing a quite aggressive booster strategy as, as well. How do you see that strategy, both in terms of sort of American public health, but then also the global situation? I mean, you do work at a global center for, uh, for public health. So how, how do you see what the American public health uh, leadership is doing in the context of the global pandemic? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, and, and thank you for asking it. And um, thanks to the the listener for that. Um, so I think there's a useful distinction that needs to be made first between uh, what is a booster, which is an additional shot given after a course is completed to, uh, as it says on the tin, boost your immunity to against a particular um, infection, versus having a third dose as part of a routine vaccination course. And I think it's very important to note that um, in for particularly for people who are immunocompromised, the third dose is, is being considered part of the routine course, right? It is a third dose that completes their course of vaccination. It's not actually a booster. And, and I think, you know, the World Health Organization and others have, have noted that there does seem to be quite strong evidence supporting giving people who are immunocompromised um, or otherwise at, at elevated risk in that way, um, this third dose to, to complete their course of vaccination. The concept of, of otherwise healthy people uh, receiving a booster at some point in time after their initial two-course uh, dose has been completed is, is a different issue. And, and certainly the WHO um, has clearly stated at this stage it, it does not recommend boosters um, at this point in time due to the absolute vast vaccine inequity that we're seeing around the world. So, you know, in terms of, of an overall strategy, um, I think what we've seen in terms of the emergence of variants and in terms of the devastation that this pandemic is causing around the world, that vaccine inequity is an enormous issue that has to be addressed. And, and I think that the, the more that the U.S. can can do to help support COVAX and, and the World Health Organization and other institutions in distributing vaccines to places that need it, the better. And, and I should say, you know, the Biden administration has donated millions of, of vaccines, largely through COVAX. And that's a, a really impressive start. But we absolutely have to do more. You know, I've been following what the genomic epidemiologist Trevor Bedford has been saying about that essentially Delta is going to sweep the entire world and really has pushed out a lot of the other variants. It really seems to be the one that really that really mattered. Should the vaccines be essentially rejiggered to be built on top of a Delta variant as opposed to on the sort of original recipe SARS-CoV-2? 
Yeah, you know, I, I'm not an immunologist, but but I think that there's there's definitely some um, some suggestion that, that that's something to look into. Um, I do also want to highlight again that you know the vaccines that we do have, the original vaccines developed against the so-called wild type original strain of SARS-CoV-2, are still very effective at preventing severe disease and and hospitalization and death. And so you know, given um, the urgency of distributing those doses to people who need them around the world, you know, we absolutely should use what we have perhaps while in the background we're thinking about some of these other little tweaks that could be made either against the Delta variant or, you know, hopefully not against other variants of concern that might emerge. Yeah. Are you worried at all about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which does really seem to have fallen from uh, attention in most places? You know, I'd love to see more research done on it, for sure. I think that there's some some interesting, uh, there needs to be more data on what happens in terms of um, uh, the the duration of immunity from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I think it's a really good candidate vaccine, especially for people who might be concerned about, um, be hesitant about taking the mRNA vaccine, even though it has, of course, been, been shown to be very safe and effective. So, so absolutely, I think we need to use all the tools that we have and, and use that as part of our public health messaging as well to encourage people to, to take up the vaccine. Yeah. We're talking about new COVID research with Claire Stanley, infectious disease and public health researcher at Georgetown Center for Global Health, Science and Security. And we want to hear your questions uh, about the evolving COVID-19 science. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we'll be back with your questions after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about all the new science around COVID that's coming out with Claire Stanley, an infectious disease and public health researcher at Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security. We want to get to your questions. I'd like to bring in Melody from San Rafael. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a home health occupational therapist in Marin, and I got my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine at the end of January. I have elderly parents in their 90s and 80s who are immunocompromised. And I'm just wondering, because it's been over eight months since my second dose, if I have to start taking more precautions around my parents when I visit them indoors, um, since a booster shot is not yet available for healthcare workers. Wow. Melody, great question. And one of those real-world dilemmas that's come up as a result of the new research here. Claire Stanley, what do you think? Um, great question. Thanks so much for putting that one. And, you know, I just want to put the caveat out there. I'm not a medical doctor, so please also uh, consider talking to your medical professionals about some of these questions since they'll be able to advise you about the specifics of your situation. You know, I certainly think precautions at this point in time are not a bad idea. Um, certainly, there's going to be a role, I think, for more um, widespread uh, rapid testing, self-testing. And hopefully in the U.S., those tests become more affordable and more readily available for people to, to help um uh, rapidly identify uh, people who are infected, especially after a uh, double vaccination. Um, and, you know, I think the it, it seems like the policies are going to change around, around getting a, a booster shot. And so it looks like perhaps in just a few weeks, um, health professionals and others may be eligible for a booster. So, you know, again, we, we talked earlier about the, the 
how that impacts potentially global vaccine equity. The fact is, you know, those vaccines are available in your area now. And so certainly um, could, you could consider taking one, one available to you. What about you specifically? Like, are you masking indoors with other people? Are you like, how are you approaching the risk calculus in, in your own situation? Yeah, great, great question. You know, um, so I actually live in Germany. And so the rules here are a little bit different from from what's happening in the States. And so here there are still mask mandates indoors and in public areas and and compliance is still very high. I certainly do, uh, will continue to wear a mask indoors for the foreseeable future, I think. Um, I also have small children who are able to go to kindergarten thanks to twice weekly um, rapid test screening. Um, and their teachers are also testing weekly. Um, and so that's, you know, particularly since they're too young to be eligible for vaccination, uh, we're trying to do the best we can to protect them and to protect our families. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about something that I know is a little bit of a hot button topic, and, and I can say exactly why. Public health people want people to get the vaccine. Um, so talking about immunity from prior infection can seem as if it's sort of detracting from the idea of, of getting the vaccine doesn't have to be that way as far as I'm concerned. What what I want to know is what we know about the amount of protection that prior infection confers compared to what vaccines can deliver. Yeah, super question. So, you know, there was a recent study from Israel as a preprint, I should note, so not peer-reviewed yet, but that did suggest that there was um, stronger uh, duration of immunity from prior infection, acquired infection rather than vaccine-induced uh, infection um, immunity, I mean. And so that, I think, has caused a bit of a stir in the news in terms of, you know, people saying, quote, natural immunity is better than vaccine-derived immunity. And, you know, I think, the again, the, one of the key takeaways from that study is that um, both vaccine-derived immunity and acquired immunity were incredibly successful at preventing the most severe outcomes, right? Hospitalization and death. The difference came with less severe outcomes like mild symptomatic disease or asymptomatic infection. And so, again, we are seeing that vaccines are incredibly protective against severe outcomes, which is really the key reason that they were developed in the first place. Yeah. Um, and and most importantly, you know, you don't have to get COVID then to, to be protected. And, and I think we are seeing that that um, it's not always easy to predict who gets really sick from COVID-19. And, and I think that risk is, is just not worth taking. Yeah. I mean, the risk of the risk from getting COVID and then recovering is much higher than getting the vaccine. So I, mean, I think or de- yeah, exactly. definitely in agreement there. I just I mean, I think one of the reasons that I'm interested in this is is the the non-individual, but the more societal level questions that this really poses. Right. Because in the U.S., we've never really tracked very effectively how many people have actually had COVID. And yet that's an important aspect of understanding where we are in the pandemic. Right. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think there's some really interesting discussions about potentially, you know, doing antibody testing of people as they come in for vaccination to see, you know, um, what that might mean in terms of needing just one dose or um, understanding what their likely immune protection is going to look like um, after a two-dose regimen as well. So absolutely, I think additional information, additional data on this is always helpful. I mean, taking a step back and thinking about this as a as a as a global infectious disease and public health researcher, you know, even abstracting a little bit from COVID. I mean, shouldn't we have set up some way of, of doing antibody sampling so we could have known the number of people who were infected in the United States? Yeah, you know, I think that would have been a really good idea. You know, it's also it's also difficult, right? Not all antibodies are the same. There's lots of different ways you can look for antibodies. You know, the the sensitivity and specificity of the types of tests that were um, produced early on for sort of at home serological testing are very different to what might be performed in a laboratory. So. 
So I think it's important to sort of caveat that with not all, you know, antibody testing is the same. Um, but absolutely, you know, I think that that coordinated research and, and certainly what, you know, what you did with the COVID tracking project really highlighted, I think, some of these issues about data compatibility and integration across different jurisdictions within the United States, which absolutely we have to think about for the next, God forbid, the next pandemic. Yeah. I For those who don't know, I was co-founder and co-ran the COVID tracking project, which ran a lot of data. Uh, around the the pandemic for 18 months. And if you sense some annoyance in my voice about why this data doesn't exist, it's because it was kind of obvious back then that this would be really useful, that in fact, like we knew that the number of cases that were being reported was a, a mere fraction of the number of total infections, which then seemed to be very important for setting up um, sort of w- even what quarter of the pandemic uh, long game we're in. So um, I want to bring in Mayor Beth from Healdsburg. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Mayor Beth. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. If you can okay. hear me. Yep. Okay. My question is actually about long COVID. So that's been one of my biggest concerns is um, at one time I was hearing, you know, up to 30% of people were suffering long COVID symptoms of, of one sort or another. So my first question is, with the vaccine, I haven't really heard, um, we've heard of breakthrough infections with the vaccine. Um, a certain percent of people are going to get infected. What about people with a vaccine? How many or what percentage of those people are suffering long COVID symptoms? That's my question number one. And then my, the follow-up question is, does the Delta variant have any effect on long COVID? Very and, good, um, Very yeah. good questions. Yeah. Thank you for that, Maribeth. Claire? Yes. Cut, cutting to the heart of it. So so the, the good news was that there was a, a recent study that came out looking at British adults. Um, and the suggestion is that people who are fully vaccinated that experience breakthrough infections seem to be about 50% less likely to experience any type of long COVID symptoms. So again, we are seeing this protective effect, not just against infection, not just against symptomatic disease, but also against the persistence of any symptoms in long COVID. So again, you know, adding to the benefit that the vaccines can can uh, provide us. Um, and sorry, I, what was the second question again? Is Delta affecting long COVID? Oh, yeah, good question. You know, I think um, as far as I'm aware, and, and I would want to do a little bit more reading on this, but as far as I'm aware, I don't think there's any indication that Delta itself is having any sort of additional impact on long COVID. What we are seeing, as, as referenced earlier, is just the sheer number of cases of Delta, the fact that it is so successful at spreading and infecting so many people. We are obviously seeing more numbers of long COVID because more people are getting infected. I think that you know one of the hardest things about long COVID is actually just getting a, a working definition or even like a typology of what long COVID could be because many of the different studies actually use different sets of symptoms, different sort of um, you know does long COVID means you you had symptoms for twelve weeks out? Is it just one symptom? Does it mean that you know you kind of have some headaches still, or does it mean that you're really debilitated? Mm-hmm. And I think that's been one of the really difficult things, Mary Beth, is just trying to figure out exactly how to define long COVID, how to measure it, and and how to separate out sort of lingering symptoms from a, a, a true like chronic post viral syndrome, right, Claire? 
Yeah, exactly. And, and similarly, you know, are we relying on patients to self-report symptoms? If so, how frequently? You know, there is a, there's been a couple of um, highly publicized studies of, of long COVID in children, for example, in the UK. And, and in one of them, parents were expected to enter their children's symptoms, I think, uh, very frequently, like weekly, at least, if, if not more frequently into an app, which is obviously quite onerous. So, you know, again, understanding how data are collected on symptoms and, and exactly as you said, Alexis, in terms of what those symptoms are that are being collected, those are really important issues and we haven't really standardized that that process yet yeah you know a, a listener writes that we dodged a question about the rate of infection among vaccinated uh, individuals is it based on lack of information or are are we worried about public health uh, opinion I guess, again, this is maybe, hopefully I'm not going to be accused of dodging the question again, but, you know, I think from, from my perspective, it's really challenging to talk about rate of infections because we, we, we so rarely know when someone's been exposed and then has, hasn't got the disease, right? We, we know when people um, test positive, but we don't necessarily know how many exposures they've had before that point and, and you know, how protected they were, um, you know, at that point in time. So, so I think it's really difficult to tell. I think one of the other challenges is, of course, all of these data are against the backdrop of changing, um, changing public health measures. And so, you know, as people's behaviors change, that's going to influence their, their rate of exposure. You know, I think there's, there's some concern that obviously healthcare workers who were some of the first to be vaccinated against COVID-19 um, and are in environments where they do have exposures all day long and, and at potentially high viral um, exposures, you know, that may be a higher risk environment. Uh, even for someone who's fully vaccinated, then, you know, someone who keeps themselves much more and isn't exposed in those situations. So it's really difficult to answer those questions without very, very carefully um, planned studies. And, and I haven't really seen great data on that yet. Yeah. I also think people underestimate how complex it is to study this in the real world, matching up the people who've been vaccinated with the people who are unvaccinated. You know, you've got to make sure that they are the same age. They, you know, you've got to measure over a certain amount of time. You've got to know if they have similar health conditions. Like this is a very difficult thing, especially in the U.S. where we don't have you know, a national health care system. The, the, I, I, one thing I've learned from all my COVID tracking project friends, particularly the doctors, is how difficult it is to execute these studies in a way that is then uh, com comparable across all the different studies coming out all over the world, like we were saying at the top. Um, so I would answer that question in, in your favor, Claire, that it's really about not just lack of information, but some conflicting information and conflicting studies coming from different places that make it difficult to just say, here's a number, here's a single number. Um, instead, there's a range of outcomes that are probably lower than the, you know, on the tin vaccine efficacy, but still very, very good, particularly relative to where we thought we might be, you know, six months in the pandemic. Um, I, wanna... well, I think that's such oh, a good point, right? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I think we, we were hoping to have a vaccine that prevented 50% of, of severe, 50% of hospitalizations or deaths. And we have far better than that. So I think we just need to also reflect on how fortunate we are to have the tools that we have to fight COVID. Yep. Yep. Also, you know, um, another thing that's very difficult to study and that has become hotly contested here in the U.S., though I gather not in many other places, as in Germany, is the uh, effectiveness of, of masking. Um, and one reason it's hard to study is that you don't really know if people are wearing their masks. So, so uh, there is some new research on this, though, and I was hoping you could just sort of tell us about, you know, how do, how do researchers try to study masking and have they been able to really show it working, particularly at a community level, not just for a single individual? 
Yeah, great, great point. And so there, you know, just before we get into the, the topic of this recent randomized control trial that was conducted in Bangladesh, I do want to mention, you know, there also are obviously a lot of laboratory-based experimental studies that look at filtration rates through masks, different types of masks, you know, how long those masks are good for and things like that. And so we have quite a lot of sort of physics-based evidence that also supports the benefit of masks, both at an individual level and in terms of sort of source control for community protection. So, you know, I think there's some strong sort of background information supporting the use of masks, plus then we layer on some of these observational community studies and, and randomized controlled trials, which also adds further to the evidence. So, so this, this study in Bangladesh that, that's been uh, quite widely um, talked about recently um, was actually looking at um, both strategies to increase mask wearing at the community level. That's sort of an element of it that I think has been overlooked quite a bit in the press. Um, and then, of course, looked at the impact of that mask wearing on um, symptomatic seroprevalence. So they only looked at, at people who exhibited symptoms and then they tested them to see whether they were um, serologically positive, had antibodies um, against SARS-CoV-2. And they saw that there was sort of a, a moderate impact potentially of, of masking and particularly that surgical masks seemed to reduce the, the seroprevalence risk of symptomatic people. Um, and particularly for those people, the benefit seemed to be greatest in, in, in those who are a bit older, over 60. So, um, it, you know, not hugely strong effect. Um, enough so that the study has generated a fair amount of controversy, um, but enough, I think, also to to point a little bit of additional uh, information in favor that that um, community masking is going to have benefits both for individuals but also for the wider population. Yeah. Um, another listener writes us another mask effectiveness question. My understanding is that the commonly available surgical masks provide suboptimal protection in terms of a person contracting the virus from an unmasked person who is shedding virus, but they do a good job in preventing a person from giving the virus to another person. Is my understanding on these points correct? And if I am correct, does that mean a person needs an N95 mask to avoid contracting the virus from an unmasked person who's shedding virus? And I would just generalize this question a little bit, which is mask quality does matter, right? Um, it makes sense to right. me that we this message seems to really have been lost a little bit. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So mask quality does does matter. Um, again, this this randomized control trial in Bangladesh does also provide a little bit of additional support. But again, we know from from laboratory experiments and just the physics of, of the virus and how um, viral particles move and spread and are transmitted. Um, sort of some some aspects of this question. So it does seem that um, in general, particularly cloth masks, and this also applies to some degree to surgical masks, are most effective for source control, so preventing someone who is infected from spreading the virus to other people. But there does seem to be some level of protection also to that individual from wearing the mask. Again, we know that that although SARS-CoV-2 does sometimes form these very small particles that can be transmitted um, through the air, that can be airborne, it also is transmitted probably through droplets. And, and so any kind of barrier is going to help you in that situation too. Um, so some level of protection for yourself, but probably most protection for those around you. Um, and yes, you know, I, I think there was a, a legitimate concern early in the in the pandemic about making sure that the best possible masks, the N95s, those that are really um, protective uh, for the wearer against um, uh, even airborne viral particles, um, were, were reserved for medical personnel and people who are really in high risk situations. Um, I think as as time has gone on, and, and it, it may be a different situation in the U.S., but but certainly here in Germany. Um, the, the equivalents of N95s are, are quite widely available now. And in fact, uh, our indoor mask mandates here require you to wear either a surgical mask or an N95 equivalent, a medical mask, they call them indoors. So cloth masks are actually considered uh, not, not sufficient in, in Germany and in indoor public settings now. Yeah. 
Really quickly, I do want to ask about treatment. Um, you know, we know there's remdesivir, we know there's monoclonal antibodies, dexamethasone. Have have we gone as far as we should have with treatments? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. I think you know there was there was uh, I think one of the Twitter um, listeners had mentioned concern that that maybe there'd be. Um, that, that too much attention was being put on vaccine and not enough on treatments. And I just want to highlight that actually on a global level, at least, there is a huge amount of attention going towards treatments. And so, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has, has been running this solidarity trial um, for, for a long time now. It's, it's now up to 52 countries that are involved, 600 hospitals. Um, so far, they've randomized over 14,000 patients. Um, and, and that's an ongoing effort to test different types of um, treatments. Remdesivir was included. Hydroxychloroquine was one of those. Interferon beta. Um, there's going to be a Solidarity Plus trial that's going to look at three new potential treatments, including artesunate, which is a standard malaria treatment. Um, and, and then other countries around the world are also running different types of clinical trials for, for different types of treatments. The UK has, has really set up a large set of those, in part because of the centralized National Health Service. Um, and so I think, you know, yes, we, we need to keep attention on that as well. But but don't worry, it's not being overlooked. Thank you. We've been talking about new COVID research with Claire Stanley, infectious disease and public health researcher at Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners, too, for so many questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. And we'll be back after a short break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.